We wanted to thank Debbie, Shelley, and Jane for sharing their stories on Paula's On Special on the AAR ONS. Sometimes we feel like the survivors take a backseat to people's interest in the investigative puzzle of such a large, unsolved case. This isn't an intellectual exercise. It's a fight to make an arrest and finally hold the attacker accountable. To that end, we've been frustrated with current law enforcement over the lack of resources available to follow up on leads. It's always the same answer. They have limited time, officers, funds, and they need to prioritize current cases. The current practice is knock and talks, which is really just a process of clearing people. It's as if law enforcement doesn't believe any suspect will ever really be the EAR, and they're doing it out of some type of obligation. The idea that you would walk up to the EAR ONS's door and tell him he is a suspect is crazy. You've tipped him off to destroy evidence and given him a chance to flee the country or take his own life before being questioned. We feel particularly unsettled by this technique because it went horribly wrong on a case in which we were involved. The suspect was tipped off by a knock and talk, and he immediately went back into his house, set his computers and house on fire, and shot himself. Law enforcement was never able to make a case against other possible defendants, determine the true number of victims, or get any answers. It was all gone in a matter of minutes. We realize that it's difficult to meet the probable cause standard to get a warrant for a POI's DNA. But following him and grabbing a sample after he eats lunch, or tosses a cigarette butt, or simply swapping the car door handle after they witness him using it, is not difficult. If they make a DNA match from a publicly obtained source, that will support a proper arrest and search warrant. It's not rocket science, and that technique has been used by law enforcement all over the country, including the recent Grim Sleeper case. They have spent untold millions on these cases over the years. The VR Snelling investigation is still the most expensive investigation in Vesalius history. We really feel that there needs to be a renewed dedication to allocating proper investigative resources to the cases and a much more significant reward for the information. The fact that the map on the FBI website refers to the 10 homicides as, quote, L.A. area is incomprehensible and shows a real lack of focus. If you have 10 minutes to wait for the PDF map to load and a magnifying glass, you might be able to figure out the ONS cities, although Irvine and Dana Point are not labeled, and Goleta is referred to as Santa Barbara, which is confusing because the two are now separate cities and about 10 miles apart. The ONS homicides took place in tight-knit communities within very specific neighborhoods. How are you going to reach the people who don't realize that they may have vital information if you don't tell them about the critical locations? The reward flyer does not include Ventura, Goleta, or Dana Point. That's eight homicides with no locations or years given in the FBI's public appeal. As far as the reward, $50,000 is less than the total of what was offered while the EAR was active 40 years ago. Presumably, they would like someone close to the offender to turn him in, perhaps a family member who puts together locations and dates, or has seen some of the stolen items. Even eventual ex-spouse isn't going to subject her children to that type of notoriety unless there is enough money for them to start over in a different city. We've looked at potential POIs in Tulare County and tried to imagine their family members living and working in a small community with post-arrest publicity around them. We don't know if any amount of money would be worth someone blowing up their own life, but $50,000 certainly would not be enough. Obviously, we'd also like to see the cases truly worked together. We've given up on the idea that all of the different jurisdictions can come together as a real work group. 
Visalia has never been included, and some of the jurisdictions have been less than enthusiastic about sharing information and dedicating resources. The FBI was supposed to help solve some of those issues, but they have a website with no details of the ONS cases and held a press conference without any of the Southern California jurisdictions represented. The Sacramento FBI office only seems to be concerned with the Northern California cases, and the Los Angeles office isn't actively involved, so we've just substituted one jurisdictional mess for another. The investigation is still lacking an objective, coordinated group willing to tear down all of the cases and start from scratch. When we started looking at the Tulare County cases, the first thing we wondered is, how did they miss him? In the V.R. Snelling case, they didn't miss him so much as veer away from him over time. We went back to the beginning to see how they caught him in the stakeout and who the original suspects were. That part of the VPD investigation was based on solid, old-school police work. They collected evidence, conducted wide-ranging interviews and neighborhood canvassing, and worked the cases from the victims outward. They stuck to facts they could prove, not guesses or assumptions, and fact-checked themselves regularly to make sure they weren't straying off course. Unfortunately, once the VR was scared off by the McGowan incident, there were no new attacks or leads to follow, and the investigation started to be more profile-based. In retrospect, it might have been helpful to dig into the beginning of the VR series because it appears that Beth Snelling and Jane Smith were targets all the way back to April 1974. VPD also could have included Jennifer R. Moore's case as a possible VR victim and done more work to determine why the VR loot was left out in the ditches on the way to Exeter. VPD's early conclusion that the ransacker lived in the VR zone went from being treated as speculation to believed as a known fact, and they never broadened their search outside Visalia. Again, jurisdictional differences came into play. VPD and TCSO generally avoided sharing information and only worked cases together when they had to. It was not a good relationship. Vaughn asked TCSO about Donna's case and was told they had their man, it wasn't the VR, and that was it. VPD couldn't say, are you sure you didn't make a mistake? It would have caused a war between the departments. Of course, that's exactly what happened when VPD tried to work the EAR case with Sacramento County Sheriffs. The relationship grew hostile very quickly. Sacramento already had their own theories about the EAR, and they didn't fit with the idea that he was from Tulare County. It's ironic that Sacramento and Visalia were each so sure the offender had to be a local that they both may have dismissed important leads from other areas. Toxic jurisdictional squabbles have seriously impaired the investigation, and the offender is the only beneficiary. We've been surprised to learn how persistent this problem is, and how much bitterness exists between case investigators past and present. We cannot understand Sacramento's initial dismissal of the VR as a vital lead in 1977, or their refusal to look again and see if they made a mistake. Those of you who watched the Paula Zahn special probably noticed that the EAR attack victim, Jane Carson Sandler, mentioned that the attacker stole her son's piggy bank, and retired detective Carol Daly spoke of the EAR leaving open multiple escape routes during his attacks. These are two of the VR's most consistent and unique MO points, and yet the connection between the attackers is still casually dismissed by task force members as a conspiracy theory. 
we've started to believe in a few conspiracy theories of our own. Why didn't Richard Shelby include the piggy bank detail in his book? He was one of the original responding officers and had been personally briefed on the VR piggy bank MO by McGowan and Vaughn. In fact, Shelby's entire VR narrative feels like a conspiracy to cover up Sacramento's terrible, unfounded decision to dismiss the VR-EAR connection 40 years ago. This starts in Chapter 30 with his physical description of the VR as, quote, not muscular or heavy, but pear-shaped, end quote. As we presented in previous episodes, this is just plain wrong. Both Beth Snelling and Jane Smith described the VR as strong, with a muscular upper body, shoulders, and arms. We've presented the contemporary police reports with Beth, Jane, and McGowan's descriptions of the VR. There is nothing that could even remotely be interpreted as pear-shaped. Shelby also contends that the VR profile stated he would be a utility worker who lived 10 miles from town. We're looking at that written profile right now in front of us. There is absolutely no mention of the VR possibly being a utility worker or any speculation regarding his profession. Nothing. Zero. It does not exist. We agree that the profile states that the VR likely lived about 10 minutes from Basalia, and we can't help but agree with that assessment. Why would Shelby add that utility worker detail? Because it supports his conclusion at the end of the chapter regarding a POI they checked out in Davis. Shelby states that, quote, I felt they had their suspect right there in front of us. I still think they did, end quote. This is a totally bizarre assertion. McGowan did not identify the man in Davis as the VR, and he was fully cleared through further investigation. Shelby has every reason to know the truth here, but goes out of his way to make it sound as if the Davis guy is still an open VR suspect. It's not true, but he then uses it to support his conclusion that since the Davis guy didn't match the EAR description, the VR wasn't the EAR. This is dangerously misleading and factually untrue. Shelby also states in Chapter 62 that, quote, Conversations with current Vesalia detectives lead me to believe that they are mostly of one mind, and that being that the VR and EAR ONS are not one and the same, end quote. We don't know to whom he's referring, but that's not an accurate statement in 2017. That is not VPD's current position on the VR-EAR connection. Shelby further tries to distinguish the VR from the EAR by stating that the VR stole men's underwear. Stealing men's underwear was not a VR MO point. There was one ransacking where he took six new sleeveless men's undershirts and shorts. The assumption was that he was going to wear them like a normal person, not that he had a fetish for men's underwear. The incident Shelby describes with the potential VR shoes being discovered by a school janitor is not accurate. The shoes were not size 9, and they were generic Tips brand knockoffs, not Converse. The VR was wearing the real deal. Some of the recounting of Beth Snelling's description of her attacker is mangled in this chapter, but we've covered that in prior episodes, so we won't rehash it here. The description of Agent McGowan shooting is also inaccurate, and we suggest re-listening to episode 11 if you have any questions. However, we would like to point out, once again, that the VR absolutely, with all certainty, did not cross the freeway and watch the search. It did not happen. It's a myth of unknown origin, and it's harmful to the investigation. Sergeant Vaughn does not know the source of this rumor, and has confirmed that the original police report, which we reported, is accurate. 
The known VR footprints were followed across Giddings, the street he would have used to cross the freeway, and then continued through the church parking lot and down the alley, ending near Kawea. Vaughn believes he entered a house near there or possibly hid in the neighborhood until the coast was clear. If you look at the double-back route the VR used that night, it seems clear he was heading to that specific area, and it could be a vital clue to the investigation. False rumors and myths are not helpful here. Shelby's contention that the military fatigue jacket worn by the VR that night did not particularly resemble anything worn by the EAR seems insincere, since the EAR was known for wearing military green. The jacket sounds similar to the one worn by the EAR in the November 10, 1976 attack, which Shelby himself describes in Chapter 14 as a military fatigue jacket. The end of Shelby's Chapter 62 is another story we've deconstructed and discussed at length in Episode 11. To recap, the peeper described in that story was positively identified and cleared by VPD. The man described there was not the VR and should not be used as evidence that the VR was not the EAR. We have no idea why Shelby would include that story in his book. According to Sergeant Vaughn, Shelby should be fully aware of the true facts regarding that suspect. It may not be obvious why all of this is important, but we've grown increasingly frustrated at the repetition of the misinformation contained in Shelby's book. We constantly hear these VR chapters cited as evidence that the VR is not the EAR, which would be fine if it weren't riddled with errors, false conclusions, and factual misstatements. Shelby is not an expert on the VR, and it appears he has some kind of vested interest in maintaining his original determination that the cases are not related. To be clear, we are following the actual evidence we've seen, and it leads directly to the VR being the AR. This isn't a theory we're trying to prove, and we don't care where the evidence takes us. We just want the investigation to stay on track and moving forward. We're still waiting for any factually correct evidence that proves, or even strongly suggests, that the EAR could not have been the VR. Unfortunately, we have seen nothing but myths, rumors, mistaken beliefs, guesses, theories, hunches, and profiles cited as proof. Those don't even rise to the level of evidence. We believe that the circumstantial evidence pointing to the VR being the EAR is overwhelming, and that evidence against the connection is non-existent. We aren't arguing that there is proof beyond a reasonable doubt, but that's hardly the standard for an investigative lead. There is no direct or circumstantial evidence that the EAR was born or raised in Sacramento. From the beginning of his attacks, he worked multiple neighborhoods, miles apart. There is no record of a series of peepings, ransackings, and prowlings in Sacramento with the correct MO in the months or years leading up to the first rape. The EAR is also believed to have hit in Stockton, Modesto, Davis, San Jose, Fremont, San Ramon, Danville, Concord, Walnut Creek, Goleta, Ventura, Dana Point, and Irvine. Was he born and raised in all of those communities? Of course not. Was he living in all of those towns and cities between 1976 and 81? No. We don't know where the EAR lived during those years, and we won't until he's arrested. He had reasons for picking the towns and neighborhoods where he prowled and attacked, but that doesn't mean that he lived or worked there. He struck in Modesto and Davis a day apart in June 1978, and that's a distance of about 90 miles. We honestly have no idea where he lived, how much time he had available to prowl, or how far he was willing to drive per night. 
the investigation should be open to all possibilities. We aren't planning to cover any more of the EAR or ONS cases since we don't have access to the primary investigative reports and notes. Our main concern now is the lack of forward progress on the cases in recent years. Since Cold Case Files originally aired their EAR ONS episode in 2003, we're only aware of a few new clues being disclosed. There was the 2011 DNA match to the bedspread in Goleta, the release of the Danville Papers in 2013, and shortly thereafter, the blue paint overspray droplet flakes found at two EAR scenes. We're not sure how many EAR police reports still exist among the different jurisdictions, but it might be useful to gather those together and attempt to publicize as many details as possible. How about creating a photo gallery of all of the shoes worn by the EAR? Someone might remember a family member or friend who had them, especially any distinctive tennis shoes. What about specific details of the stolen property, Rings, cufflinks, unusual coins, specific piggy banks. Why doesn't law enforcement have a gallery of those items available? Also, why isn't there an official interactive map of the known attacks with times, dates, and locations? Google Maps are easy to create and share. We have about a dozen different ones covering all of the cases between 1974 and 1986. We don't understand how people are supposed to call in useful tips when law enforcement isn't publicizing most of the critical information, especially dates, times, specific locations, and items stolen in the attacks and homicides. We're not talking about what's available for people who are already interested in the case and seek out the websites and books. We're concerned the investigation isn't reaching average people who don't know anything about the case but hold a valuable clue. The TV specials are great, but trying to cover all of the cases in 50 minutes doesn't work. The physical description is too broad in general to be enough on its own. Potential tipsters need to know the exact where and when of each case, and in our minds, that includes the VR. Mm-hmm.